Welcome back to Expert Instruction, the Teach by Design podcast where we dive deeper into the research surrounding student behavior by talking with the people implementing these practices, where they work, and with the students they support. I'm Megan Cave. Guys, I'm flying solo today. Nad is out sick, but we know the show must go on and I'm here soldiering on without her. But we wish her well. Get well soon, buddy. Before today, Nad and I have had long conversations about what's going on in schools right now. We see the headlines and we've read the threads on social media. Teachers are out here telling us the behaviors they see in their classrooms have increased, either in number or severity. They're seeing more fights, more disruptions, more students skipping class altogether, and it's all just adding up to create spaces that feel more chaotic than ever. Teachers are telling us they're overwhelmed and they want some solutions. So we wanted to take the time today to talk about that directly and give everyone ideas for how to build on those school-wide systems you have in place to support the students you work with every day. And maybe, just maybe, bring yourself a little more peace in your classrooms. Today, we're talking with Dr. Billy Joe Rodriguez and Noah Van Horn. Billy Joe is a returning guest on our podcast. She's back, guys. She's a staff member with Northwest PBIS Network and a senior lecturer at the University of Oregon. And Noah is a school psychologist and PBIS coach with Springfield Public Schools in Springfield, Oregon. In our conversation today, we'll explore the idea of what Billy Joe calls dosing up the school-wide support you provide. We'll share how you can lean on the critical elements of tier two support and offer up just a little bit more to an entire class or even your whole school. This isn't about enrolling every student in check and check out. It's about taking the concepts behind classically targeted supports like check and check out and finding creative ways to apply those to a larger group. So you better believe we have some practical ways you can start doing this right now with your students. Here we go. So Billy, Joe, and Noah, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, for, uh, thanks for having us on. Yeah. Happy great. to be here. Yeah. So we're here today to really just kind of dive into like the nuts and bolts of how to offer additional support when you know that you've got a lot of support that needs to be given. Um, Basically, before we know, before we talk about adding on additional support and resources, the first thing that we have to do that we talked about in our Teach by Design article is that you have to just kind of verify that all of the things that you said you were going to do in the first place, all those school-wide systems and practices, that all of those things are actually in place, that you're doing those things. You didn't forget, right? And Noah, when we were talking earlier, uh, we, the three of us had talked earlier about some of these ideas, and you had mentioned that some of the schools that you work with have been longtime PBIS implementers, and that this year they saw some spikes in behavior, and when you went to go meet with them, you found out maybe they had forgotten one thing, you know, or two things, something like that. Yeah, so some of the buildings that um, I have supported, and you know, as we as we came back from a pandemic years ago, we had focused a lot on um, trying to get kids ready to re-enter school and the safety measures yes. and everything. And right, like we got really good at focusing on that side of things, and then that caused a little bit of drift for some of uh, the schools that um, you know I support as a as a PBIS coach. 
Um, and so, you know, we, we kind of get like hyper-focused on one thing or another from time to time. And some of the issues that we ran into this year as we were starting to kind of re-enter is that some of those core practices, especially like right out of the gates that we would typically have in place where we're making sure all staff know exactly how we're going to do like our rules rodeo or reteaching expectations, like even making sure that all staff knew what those expectations yeah. were in all settings, right? Not all of those things happened. And we didn't even realize that we hadn't done it until all of a sudden students didn't know what the expectations were in <laughs> yeah. different settings. So like, yeah. you know, you've got a variety of different teachers who all have different methods for releasing their students for X, Y, and Z, and it causes conflict. And we're like, well, did we, we, we've had a plan in place for this forever. And it turns out we didn't teach what that plan was this year. Right. Um, and so we, we kind of ran into this issue where all of those really like core tier one practices that we had gotten good at doing, we fell off a little bit and yeah. then had to have a reset. And one of the things that I love about this kind of happening is it was a great reminder that you don't have to wait until later to do the reset. Like yeah. you, you use your data, you figured out that there was an issue. Yeah. It's not like, well, we didn't do it in the fall. So let's wait until winter to do it. It's like, let's do it next week because we didn't do this well the first time. Let's come <laughs> back and actually use the data that we have and make good decisions from it. Yeah, exactly. And we were also, um, if Nad was here today, she's out sick today. Um, but if she was here today, we um, she tells this story about when her daughter was very young and she, the two of them were walking on the sidewalk and her daughter kept kind of heading off the curb into the street. And she kept saying to her, you got to stay on the sidewalk. Don't go on the street, stay on the sidewalk. And she repeated herself over and over and over again and was like, she's not listening to me. And finally, someone asked her if her daughter actually knew the difference between the sidewalk and the street and when the sidewalk stopped being the sidewalk and actually became the street. Like, And she realized that she hadn't actually taught her young daughter about the concept of a curb and that she needed to actually right. teach her that. And that she had jumped in her mind to my kid isn't listening to me when really it was that she had not taught the fundamental definition of a curb. And once you do that, like her kids stayed on the sidewalk and everything was fine. Everyone was safe. It's all fine. So those, I think it just gets at though, this idea that there are some fundamental components that need to be taught first and made sure that those building blocks are in place, that they set up that foundation on which everything else is layered on top of. And, Absolutely. Um, and those school-wide systems, practices, supports, that's what those are. That every kid in your building gets access to those things just because they attend your school, right? Right. So all of those, you have to make sure that those are in place before you start saying we have a problem. So... Yeah, I think that goes to classroom practices too, right? We're yeah. always looking to align our classroom practices with our school-wide practices. And I think one of the pitfalls sometimes is this assumption, especially as kids get older, like, oh, they've been through this before, we don't need to yeah. do it. Yeah. Yep. Been through this before, we don't need to do it. So, yeah. so then we don't do that. Like everyone's here. I'm going to really focus in on making sure we reteach this piece or I'm going to teach this really, really clearly because I'm just going to make the assumption that you already know the difference between a sidewalk and a road yes. as opposed to... I'm going to make the assumption that no one has heard this no before. No one has ever told you now that. Now we're all coming at it from the same ones. And you might be a little bit motivated to be on the road. Maybe there's something a little exciting out there. Um, and so it's it's not just the telling part of the teaching, but also uh -huh. the reinforcing part and getting that kind of behavioral momentum in the right direction. 
Uh, And I think not only did adults forget to do some of the things, but like the sidewalk example, um, we had a lot of similar experiences where we have kids who are fourth or fifth graders or sixth or eighth graders who we know a few years ago, they knew how to line up in the cafeteria. And, <laughs> and I think historically, we've kind of been able to rely on that behavioral momentum of a lot of kids that have already been through the, these, you know, instructional pieces, and they kind of know what it means to be a member of this school culture and community, because they have that history and that shared history. And so then you just have the new ones, the kinders and the, you know, kids that have moved in and to the new staff, but you've got the older staff. And so I think it also we had a lot of um, just drift right around how to actually do things because we had a lot of staff turnover um, during time when a lot of instruction was different and the focus was on safety or maybe we weren't going into the cafeteria at all exactly um and I was so just thinking that I was coming thinking back about how expectations have even or the way that school works has even changed like from year to year right the spacing of it we wear our mask we don't wear a mask we're six feet apart we're not we hand sanitize all the time now we do it sometimes we don't go in the cafeteria we have lunch in school in our classrooms now we go in the cafeteria it's it was a it was ever evolving from one month to the next yeah and it was really neat to see early on in the pandemic our pbis teams take the work that they had done and apply yeah. that, right? Like, how does this look on Zoom? How does this look yes. at this hybrid instructional model? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think some, as coaches, we sort of, at least I know I was guilty of kind of thinking that it would be easy to kind of go back into those old ways because we had those established, sure. but sure. really we having like that this all the time. Now so we get then, to go back and do it the way we used to do it. It's great. Yeah. And so yeah. there's kind of that assumption that folks would know what to do and do it. And I think what we saw is that not just for kids, but also for adults to have the, like, what are those cues? And, you know, we let a little bit of our fidelity implementation work slide because we had too many things on our plate. So then folks weren't, you know, maybe as strategic in action planning, which is just all of those things together, the missed opportunities to practice, the community kind of cultural history um, established that normally lives on from year to year or season to season. Um, and then combined with lots of missed opportunities to practice, um, mm-hmm. you know, how to interact with each other. Um, and yeah. so a lot of yeah. assumptions that I think led to challenges in really getting folks back to the things that we know work well. Mm-hmm. And what I heard Noah say is that it's never too late to get back on, on the horse, right? Absolutely. It's never too late. It is one of the things that I want everyone to know is that you don't have to wait. Like you can look, you look at your data, make good decisions and you can do it tomorrow. You don't have to wait for a a huge, you know, you can do it now. You can end the year on a positive note and carry that momentum. Like Billy Joe was saying into your summer and early school year next year too. So I guess today, really what we wanted to focus on though, was that let's say you're a school where you've got some, you've got these things in place. You've got your school-wide systems, practices, data, all of that stuff is working great, but you're also finding that there's a lot of other behaviors that have come up. You've seen an increase in in the behaviors that are happening in your building. So I guess where we need to start is in 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 a traditional way, in a classic PBIS implementation context, you've got these school-wide systems that are working for about 80% of your kids. 
And then you've got the next layer of support that you can offer to about 15%, those group-based targeted interventions that we call tier two. So maybe we should start there and talk about what is tier two? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, so yeah we'll what is tier yeah. two? Well, uh, I think- And how is know, it different, I guess, too, from tier one? Like how, what distinguishes them? Yeah, so um, I always reference some of the work that Bob Algazine and Susan Barrett, Lucille Eber, uh, Heather George, Rob, others did, um, gosh, we're approaching at least 10 years from some of really clear articulation of what tier two is mm -hmm. um, around three core critical features, which is their additional instruction and time for skill development. Um, so more opportunities to practice, more opportunities to focus on really targeted strategic skills, mm -hmm. um, additional structure and predictability. So sometimes that looks like, you know, a pullout group where there's mm -hmm. more time around really targeting those skills and doing that in a consistent way so that we know it's protected and happening. And then the last one of the three core features is increased opportunity for feedback. Um, and so making sure that we have regular opportunities to support growth, but also to catch errors and correct those really quickly and swiftly so that students don't continue to uh, make academic or behavioral mistakes. Um, and then over time, as we've refined this work, when we talk about tier two, some other things that have emerged that we train and teach teams about mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. continuously available. So yes. making sure that we have a way to provide these supports pretty quickly before problems get so big that then they need more individualized or intensive supports. Um, we also have to think about the effort and the efficiency because we yes. can anticipate that 10 to 15% of students, even in a healthy, really robust tier one system are going to need some additional supports. And so if we're doing things that are a big lift, you know, in a school of 500, that's 50 kids at 10%. Um, and so really thinking about making sure that it's feasible and doable um, is important. The other reason why we talk about kind of low effort, or I'll say it in air quotes, but generic, um, mm -hmm. is that we want to create um, efficient ways for students to be faded back into tier one supports. And yes. So if we individualize too much too quickly, um, then there's a lot more layers of the onion to fade back before a student is going to be able to be successful in what we're doing for all students because we've gone too quickly to um, individualizing things for them, which educators love to innovate, but we have to kind of find that fine line of finessing it enough that it's going to meet the needs while still keeping it efficient, right? If I've got 50 kids in tier two and 10 of them are on the playground all at the same time and two EAs doing feedback at the end of the period, like we can't have individualized conversations with mm -hmm. all of those students about how they did. So that efficiency piece, both from a staff standpoint and from being able to hopefully fade supports for students. Um, and then the last couple, which overlap a lot with what we've already talked about in terms of yeah. those three core features, is that yeah. consistency with our tier one. Um, so if we're doing school-wide expectations around safe, respectful, responsible, sure. use mm. the same language. Um, if we're teaching, you know, belly breathing as a strategy for all of our students for social emotional regulation, then using that same language when we're doing intensifying our supports so that again, students have those opportunities to be prompted to use those skills in a natural way and not just during that targeted instructional time. Yeah. Um, and then the last one is related to that opportunity for feedback, but just that ongoing opportunity to skill build and monitor. 
Um, and so if we think about this for reading, right, and a student gets identified for a small group additional support for reading, that doesn't just happen in the 30 minutes with that reading interventionist, but ideally there's consistency in the curriculum and the language yeah. so that those skills are supported all day long in the regular classroom as well. Um, mm -hmm. So that was maybe a long answer. <laughs> no, there's a lot a of, answer. Answer. Kind of those critical features. I'm like busy <laughs> writing them all down. Yeah. I'm like, got it, got it. Consistent with tier and, one. Okay. And everything yeah, you it. said is like, so let's think about like check in, check out as like our quintessential tier yeah. two intervention that aligns classic. with everything that Billy it's Joe is just like, it's a classic, right? <laughs> it's a, it's our go-to for a reason. Um, you know, we've got tons of research on it showing the effectiveness for kids across behavioral functions. But to, to talk to what Billy Joe is saying in terms of kind of that efficiency piece, like like there's a reason why we set those expectations as be safe, be respectful, be responsible on the student's you know, point card, because it aligns with what our school-wide expectations are. So there's that ease, that fluidity to go back into our core. And we're using our data to show that students are struggling with those tier one behaviors that we've already established with our tier one practices. And so then we start to say, well, they need increased time. They need increased opportunities for practice, right? They need increased structure and predictability. And so we, we layer on those components to what our tier one practices are. That way we are able to make it A, easy to move in. Like think about if we were to go the other direction and every kid had five individualized goals right out of the gate just because they were struggling with, you know, lining up every day. And now we wanted to fade back in it's a whole lot harder to jump back into just your tier one supports when you've built this really complicated system for each kid. And that took a long time. Like part of my 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 other role outside of being a, a PBIS coach is a school psychologist, and you have to go through the whole FBA process, and you're working on yes. an individual kid. That is very labor intensive. And so we use uh, tier two supports. We use uh, interventions like check in, check out as a way to quickly and efficiently get students the support that they need when our data is indicating that they need it. Yes. And so my other question then is, when do you know that behavior is in a place where a student would need those tier two supports? Great question. Um, you just said giant it. data nerd. Just said yeah, it. giant data yeah. nerd over here. So I'm gonna say it eight million, more, eight million more times. But data, you've got to have the data sources to be able to determine whether that's your school-wide office discipline referral data mm -hmm. or just referral data, right? Whether that is check-ins, you've got students who are um, maybe like leading um leaving class regularly and they're going to the office. And so we're keeping a log of the students that come in and when they come in and why they come in. Yeah. It might be that you're using a school-wide screener for social skills, but we're using data for decision-making and not just going, well, I really feel like Billy Joe is it very nice these days, so let's just put her on check and check out. <laughs> yeah. um, I really feel like Sally needs social skills, so let's just put <laughs> her in a social skills group. Yeah. Like We need to have information that allows us to not just identify which students need support, but what support they need and how we can track whether or not they are going to be successful in that intervention when to fade it out and how to monitor to make sure that later on down the line, um, we know that that was actually successful for them and they don't need to be pulled back in for, you know, another dose of that. So it's all about the data. Yeah. Yes, it is oh. about the data. And I think it's about being precise uh, in our conversations about what the need is. Mm -hmm. um, I laugh inside, but also cry, maybe <laughs> bittersweet <laughs> response when, when people will say, well, this student needs social skills instruction. Of course, we all need a good social skills, right? Like we need to be able to navigate the world on any given day for us <laughs> and the world. Um, yes. and, and so similar, right? It's like, of course, the student needs to be able to read, but what those skills actually are 
um, is I think a lot of times where we kind of miss an opportunity to have a, an effective impact or maybe we're not as good at using our data um, to actually say, what is the, the precise need, right? Is it a decoding issue or is it a fluency issue? Um, or, you know, is this a same thing? Like, are there challenging or behaviors that are impacting the student's ability or willingness to engage in um, behaviors that are going to help them be more successful from a, you know, teacher relationship perspective? Um, or is it that they don't know how to navigate this because this context looks really different than um, maybe where they've spent, you know, the last couple of years learning if they've been in online or in a different school or different mm -hmm. teacher. Um, and so it's not just, I mean, I think data is important, but it's also using our data in a way that helps us be precise and understanding yeah. what the problem is and not just stopping at the, you know, there's too many referrals or the, <laughs> you know, their reading fluency, like their reading score is low, but are they accurate? and slow yeah. or are they you know making right. a lot of mistakes but actually you know reading a lot of words um, yeah. i think too that data can tell a story but i also think that sometimes the data can lay a little bit flat without that personal the anecdotes the experiences that the stories that we can tell from as being someone who has interacted with kids right that that I can come and say, my classroom is overwhelming. The amount of behavior happening is just too much. And you would say, well, I want to, I want to know what's going on. I want to see those behaviors. I want to know what, which ones specifically so that we can figure out how to address exactly your context and what's going on in it. And both of those things work together, right? They mm -hmm. make a fuller, brighter picture of what's actually going on so that the solutions that you implement are more effective and they're precisely tailored to what's going on, right? So you yeah. have to have, I think personally, you have to have both. Someone can, I can look yep. at your data and think that it says one thing and you look at it and you go, no, no, I know exactly what happened that day. Let me tell you what happened that day. <laughs> you know? yeah, I was just having this conversation with a principal, our assistant principal yesterday, um, who's also kind of charged with school culture climate in her mm -hmm. building. Um, and we were talking about that balance of bringing information to team meetings, but then also giving place to contextualize yeah. and how to do that. And she was asking for my recommendation. Of course, I was like, I don't, you know, there's not a perfect way to do it. But I think the takeaway for me is coming into meetings, team meetings where we're, where the purpose is to look at how are things doing, right? Whether it's our tier one or individual kids um, with data already organized yes. and then presenting the information and then having space to actually have a Tell conversation what about what does this mean? <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. how might we um, get here? And then because I've been in a lot of meetings where they've spent the meeting trying to make sense of the data. And then we yes. never really get to the place of contextualizing because no one sort of pre-said, here's some, you know, patterns that see. I'm seeing or trends. And then we could sort of talk about how we might, um, might've landed at those. Um, so I think that's another piece when we kind of think about how do we know when we need more supports is having a plan for looking at data ahead of time and then a team or people with different perspectives mm -hmm. coming together with the goal of then saying, what does this data mean? Um, what are the patterns that we're seeing over time um, and making sure that we're not, that's, I think I heard someone say not too long ago, you can make data. And I think you just sort of said it, right. You can make your data say whatever you want it to say, sure. um, yeah. you know, if you're just looking at a single slice, right. um, yeah. but it's yeah. really those multiple perspectives and looking for patterns um, where we can start to then say, oh, we need some more 
supports here um, to do this work more efficiently. So related to that, right, the the thing that the conversation that's happening in a, in a lot of different places, primarily on social media and the news, reports are coming out, surveys, educators are being surveyed. And what I hear is that there are just more behaviors happening in schools. And we can look at data. In fact, I did. I looked at some national trends. Um, but I also want to, I also think that two things can be true at the same time, that uh, data could tell us one thing and the lived experience could be a little bit different, or at least my reaction to it is different than what the data might tell you. And what I'm curious about is how do we address those places where the classrooms really are seeing an increase in behavior. Maybe they're seeing more like aggressive kinds of escalated behaviors, but I think primarily a lot of the behaviors that are happening for teachers in classrooms is that they're seeing more of these low level classroom managed types of yes. behaviors, disruptions, defiance, um, maybe, I don't know what else it could be, tardy, something like this, where it's just like mm -hmm. these simmering things and they're seeing them a lot. Like let's, let's say in a classroom of like 25 kids, you've got a couple that are talking out regularly. You've got another group of kids that always have to go to the bathroom at the same time. You've got another kid who's, who's late always. Um, you've got another set of kids who always never seem to be, to hear the instructions the first time that you're always just kind of repeating yourself. And so all of that is the kind of thing that just builds and wears you down. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we're talking about here is that tier two really is for kids who need additional support. And it's typically a smaller group of kids. But what happens when you have a large portion of your classroom that could use some additional skills and support? And I think what we do is something that Billy Joe, you had talked about, which is called, you've referred to it as dosing up the support that you provide. Yeah. So I want you to talk a little bit about what you mean when you say that, and then we'll talk about maybe what that looks like. Yeah, and I think we do this on the academic side, or we should be, as well as the social behavior <laughs> side. So I'm trying to make parallels on both sides, <laughs> depending on which, which side resonates. Um, one of the things that I would say is that when we look at our data, a lot of times we sit down and say, which kids, right? Mm. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's the, these three are talking out, these three Hang are, yeah. you know, <laughs> hanging out in the hallway too much or whatever it is. And I think sometimes we miss an opportunity to say, how many kids? Right. And so sometimes trying to do things kid by kid, like what Noah was sharing with his FBA analogy is also true, even at the tier two level with those low level kind of chronic misbehaviors. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that even teachers can do in their own classroom is say, you know, what percentage or proportion of students in my class are struggling with either this type of behavior. So if it's disruption or elopement, hanging out in the hallway, yeah. like they can look by behavior topography or they could say routine, like man, reading, whole group reading is right after recess and it's really hard, right? Like there's a uh -huh. lot of kids doing a lot of different things in this particular routine. And if you're identifying more than, you know, again, that same 10 to 15% of students, then that's an indication that we're not going to get very far by trying to do something student by student. Um, and where we might start to look at, okay, let's intensify 
are strategies that we know are really effective um, at, for example, tier two, those practices that we might do, like increase structure, increase predictability, increase mm. feedback, but mm-hmm. let's do it with the whole group. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be much more efficient for me than trying like to that. do this, you know, uh, targeted more check-in, check-out for Megan and Noah and John and Sarah, right, is <laughs> thinking about, okay, if I take my marble jar that I'm already using all day long to give positive, and I say, let's say we're going to focus on a specific behavior, like talking in turn. Yeah. Those, that behavior could be worth double, right? Like it's worth two marbles oh, yeah. every time I talk in turn, or I catch kids doing the opposite of the problem <laughs> um, and try to build that momentum to really focus strategically on the, the skill we want to see. Or during reading group, right, every time, you know, all the marbles that I give out, again, double marbles during reading group time. So being really strategic about things that you might already be doing, but maybe at a certain time period or a certain target behavior or skill um, can be a really powerful way to take those things that we know work for tier two, which is that increased structure, increased predictability, increased feedback, but do that as part of your whole class. You might really have a handful of kids in mind who are going to benefit, but the reality is that's going to be much more efficient for a teacher to manage if I present this as a whole class strategy. So I'm essentially doing it tier one, but I'm targeting a really specific aspect, right? Either a specific behavior I want to see change or a specific routine. So I'm not trying to do it all day, all the time for every behavior, but being more kind of thoughtful about how I'm intensifying you know, are dosing up that effective practice that I already have in place, such as specific positive feedback for appropriate behaviors. Um, yeah. And, so. and ch- just to take that dosing analogy or the, that dosing idea for your, for your tier one whole class systems, like one step further, I think that there is going back to the, like, there's no, it's never too late to like reteach mm-hmm. side of things. There is, I feel like right now in particular, um, going on that feeling that you're talking about, about, you know, increased behaviors as a whole within the classroom, mm-hmm. there is this, um, there's this instructional coach that I heard uh, years ago who I love this quote, so I'm going to um, probably screw it up, but it's, okay. <laughs> um, it's this idea that like your expe- expectations are what we allow, not what we say, right? It's what you allow. So if you are the classroom teacher and we've taught our expectation, but then as kids come in and they are talking out left and right, and I'm just answering every single question, my expectation is not that you raise your hand to speak, even though I said at the beginning, Everyone needs to raise your hand to speak. If I just respond to every talk out every single time, that's not my expectation. Uh-huh. And I think what happens is we, we especially this year, we, we moved on into the year and there's a little thing and then another little thing and another little thing. And that feeling like you talked about earlier kind of built up. And so in the dosing up side of things, reteaching those expectations, yeah. coming back to it again and again and again, and making sure that we are actually um, holding each other accountable. We are we are making students practice until we've reached a level of success that we feel good about. And then if it starts to drift, we come back and do it again. We mm-hmm. can't just assume that because we did a one-time teach the expectation or tell the expectation even worse at the beginning of the school year, I told you what it is, you should know how to do this, that we should be able to um, have students know what the what is expected of them and do it well. So we, we need to have opportunities for practice for those whole um, class behaviors throughout the course of the year and not just assume that if three kids are doing it really poorly and five kids are doing it a little less poorly and it's not <laughs> so great that now we need to do, you know, um, we need to do check and check out for all eight of those kiddos. 
Yeah, right. And I think too, what uh, I think it was Billy Joe, you said that we could all use some social skills, right? So that that it could just be a few kids in your classroom that are are causing enough of um, a vibe that you really need to like just get like let's do let's do it as a class, you know. Let's just mm -hmm. do some part of this as a class. We talked about this with um, Kathleen Strickland Cohen yeah. and uh, Brian Meyer and Amy Flamini on a on a past episode around de-escalation that if you've got kids in your classroom that are all kind of dealing with these big feelings and you've got enough of them to where it feels like your whole classroom is escalated and everyone is a little bit on edge, like when is this going to happen? When is the explosion going to happen today? Then why not take some of those strategies for how to de-escalate and teach them to your whole class? That way yeah. everybody knows because we could all we could all probably use a moment in the day where we take some deep breaths or we ask for a break or whatever it is, teach it to everybody. And then for the kids who really need it, they've gotten it as a class-wide strategy. And maybe there are some other things too, for some of them, some of them where they get pulled out for some additional instruction. And the other lovely thing about that example that you just shared, Megan, is hopefully they also get some modeling from other students mm -hmm. using that behavior, right? If if we expect all of our students who are struggling with a, a particular skill to learn it quickly and be able to apply it when they've already given us the information that this is hard for them, that's kind of a... Um, it's too high of an expectation likely for where our kids are at. But if we can teach all kids how to use this skill and then the kiddos who really need it more also get that constant modeling from their peers using it the right way, yeah. it makes it that much more impactful and that much more effective. Yeah, they get reminders from their friends, like maybe a deep breath is good right now or like want to go <laughs> want to go take a break over in the corner with me or whatever it is. Yeah, having that peer modeling, that peer feedback. I have definitely been in classrooms where teachers hadn't taught uh, social skills as a tier one practice before, started teaching it. And by the next year, you've got kiddos who are encouraging each other to go use the break space. They're mm -hmm. encouraging each other to take that deep breath. And that yeah. is pretty, that's pretty big stuff when a teacher doesn't even have to correct the behavior or be the one who's intervening in that moment. Mm -hmm. Right. Because there are some students who it's really hard for them to have a conversation about how they're feeling. But if that's part of the routine every single day, then more of them are going to be able to do that and support each other and also know what to do when somebody doesn't respond. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it really is about being strategic. And we, we do the same thing with literacy or math, right? Which is that we look at our data, we do a school-wide you know, assessment for reading fluency, and then we say, wow, third grade's got some, their fluency is looking great, but comprehension, like this is a new skill where they're really focusing on paying attention to what they're reading and if we just look at comprehension data and fall of third grade, we have 35% of our students who are at risk. That is not an indication that 35% of students should be going to a reading intervention, but actually for our third grade team and maybe even our second grade team, if this is a pattern that's kind of emerging year after year, can we do some things with our whole class to help support those strategies for comprehension? Because then we don't have the capacity to do small group instruction for comprehension when we exceed that kind of 15% threshold. Yes. So it's that place of sometimes we need to go back and do it's more efficient and effective to do it for everybody because it's not yes. going to hurt anybody. And right. even our kids who are good comprehenders, chances are they're going to pick up some strategies 
or be able to model for their peers those mm -hmm. things that Noah was sharing. Um, and so I think it's that piece of asking yourself, when am I going to get more for my like time and energy by doing this with everybody um, versus starting to do it for a small group of students? Yeah, and it's not necessarily about asking everyone to like, okay, I'm going to do, like you were saying, I'm not going to do check in, check out with everybody. That's not efficient. So are there components of it Right. I could do with everyone. And we were just talking like you could do a check-in when kids come in, they have to say how they're feeling. However, that looks right. That right. they can do it on their phone. They could do it on their tablet. They could put a sticky on something like whatever it is there. Everyone is telling you how they're entering the classroom. And then it, in order to leave the classroom, you just ask people like, how was today? Did this go okay for you? Are you, do you still have questions? Whatever it is, you ask everyone to do some form of a checkout. So that's a way that you can adapt what you're doing at tier two to work for everybody in the classroom. And it gives you information as a teacher that you could use to change some part of your instruction during the day the de-escalation strategies. That's just like, it's all of these things that you look at, what are we doing at tier two? And is there some component of that? Because I've got a lot of it going on in my classroom. Is there some component of it that I could do efficiently for everyone that would improve the behavior overall um, and still like, let me keep going on with my day because I got a lot of stuff to do. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, and for those kids who still need more, then you're also creating yes. an environment where they know how or are more likely to be able to, be prompted and supported to use those skills in that natural setting as well, which is going to help everybody. It helps uh, everybody. I love that you said that. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's going right. to, it's only going to be useful. So I guess when we think about this, we're knowing the landscape that we're in, right? Like teachers are struggling in a lot of ways. One of them is with behavior in, in their classrooms, but it's one part, you know? And I think overall, the field of education is at this real, I don't know, it feels volatile. It feels volatile. And so if we're talking about behavior and we're talking about the ways that we can support teachers to support students in their classrooms, what would you, what would you tell them? What would you tell teachers that they could do right now? And then the other question that I want you to answer is, what would you tell an administrator to do to support teachers who are doing this work? Answer either Ooh. part of that that you want. <laughs> well, I feel like I, I feel like I led off with this, so I'm just gonna uh, bring it yeah, back. Yeah, close it out. Don't, yeah, great. Don't be, don't be afraid <laughs> to go back and reteach it now. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I have seen really great classrooms do this year is they they understand that students are not gonna get it just that one time, and they have been coming back and refocusing on it and refocusing on it. Another thing that I have seen really good teachers doing this year is like you brought up, Megan, getting feedback from their students daily. So they're focusing on those relationships and they're focusing on getting feedback from their students about how they're doing so they can adjust their practices. Yes. Um, and then finally, I think um, teaching routines is one of those things that we talk about but gets lost a little bit. Um, you know, how to go to the bathroom, how to go to the drinking fountain, how to sharpen your pencil, how to turn in your homework. There are a lot of little efficient routines that we can teach students within our classroom that makes the flow really easy, which mm -hmm. makes it a whole lot easier for teachers. And so using some of those um, really basic but really great classroom management skills, mm -hmm. and then knowing that we need to come back and do it again and again throughout the course of the year has been where I feel like we need to give teachers the, the 
freedom to say, I'm going to push pause on a little bit of my math instruction today so that we can focus on how to do this routine really well because it's been slipping. Yeah. And and that, I guess, goes back to administrators as well, too. Like administrators, encourage your teachers, if they are struggling with classroom behavior, to give them the, the freedom and the time to be able to go back and do some of that reteaching practice because it pays off in spades. You know, we can't we can't teach if the classroom is being disruptive all the time. So no instruction is even happening. We need to we need to encourage people to take the time to actually do that. Nice. I was just. Um... I'm going to mess it up the quote someday. I'm not going to quote the person, but I was just uh, working with some of my graduate students on they're in a class on consultation. And so been talking about um, strength based approach and uh, asset framing and really thinking about contributions and goals. And um, and so what comes to mind as you're asking, you know, asking that question is what are we accusing kids of? Right. And if we accuse them of things that are great there's a higher likelihood that they will actually achieve those things. But if we are approaching this work from a deficit, right, or a reactive um, place, then sometimes what we're trying to accomplish is the same, right? We want students to be more engaged or be more successful academically. But I think giving, what I would say for administrators, I'll answer that one first, is giving space for teachers to reflect on what is working and what isn't working. One of my favorite activities to do is to say, what's a problem? What is a problem that you are encountering that if you don't do anything tomorrow is gonna, right? You're gonna <laughs> encounter it tomorrow because you, you and then, um, and sometimes you do this at the start of the year, like thinking to last year, if you just do what you did last year, what might you anticipate could be challenging? Well, the voice volume in the cafeteria is gonna be too loud, right? Yeah. And say, so, okay, is this a, is this a problem for, me because it's impacting it's a lot of students is it some students is it one student like where is it coming from across that continuum because that changes a little bit the nature and then what's the opposite of that behavior right what would a, what would a change look like so if it's talking out you know it's not that you just want them to be quiet you want them to talk in <laughs> turn right or engage successfully and so kind of going through this space to go through this thought process of what errors might I anticipate, right? What mistakes might I expect? Is this impacting me because it's impacting a lot of students or is it impacting me because it's impacting some or one, but it's a really big behavior? And then, you know, what might the like opposite of this problem look like? Like what would the behavior be that would be incompatible with this mm -hmm. challenge? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, giving people space to kind of plan to get there. Like how could I prevent it or how could I reinforce the opposite to try to support that, but it takes time. Um, otherwise we end up just kind of in reacto mode and then yes. it's not, you know, we're just spinning our wheels and that's frustrating because one of the, I mean, we talk about check and check out is so effective because it's a preventative, right? We have a check-in at the start and we prompt kids, Hey, remember, I want you to do these three things and this is what it looks like. And then we give them that feedback versus about the same amount of time to be like, Noah, stop it. What are you doing? Noah, get your pencil out. <laughs> Noah, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It's just that we have to have a little bit of space to think ahead of what might be the challenge and how could we head that off, which is where data is really powerful. But also in the moment right now, I think, you know, we may, maybe they haven't been writing their referrals, so there's not data in there, but, you know, that activity is really um, one of my favorites. And then I think for teachers, um, thinking about, you know, again, what's the most important thing that you want to prioritize right now for yourself and for your students, you know, and how can we give you space or how can you give yourself space to do that 
Um, and if you sell it for the most part, kids will buy it. That's I love great. all of these ideas. And the, the thing about it is that like, I don't think the three of us sitting here talking to each other about this are magically going to solve anyone's problem, that all of this stuff is so contextual. And that really what I heard you both say is like, go back, encouraging everyone to go back and consider what is your actual context and data can help you figure out some part of that, like get a handle on it anyway, put some boundaries and borders on the problem that you're trying to solve. And I also heard you say that it's important for everyone to be given the time and space that's needed to define what it is that that they need to solve and figure out for themselves, what is the priority and how am I going to achieve it? And so I think that just that alone is going to be useful to people. Um, but like I said, we're not solving it here in these 30 minutes. <laughs> we're not going to do it. But what we can do is just offer people some path forward for them to figure out how to solve the problems that, that they're encountering. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time to share your experience and to give people some ideas for how they can move forward in their buildings. Thanks so much. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Thank of you. Of course. Yeah. yeah, anytime. Yeah.